You're listening to a presentation of The Rising. We're always encouraged to know God is changing lives through this ministry. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know and send an email to stories at wearetherising.com. Now, prepare your heart and mind to hear a word from God. So the early 20th century, an author and impresario, Napoleon Hill, said that great achievement is often born of great sacrifice. He said great achievement is often born of great sacrifice. Let me ask you, when you think about the church, what do you think of? Because here's what a lot of American Christians think of. When they think about the church, they think of it as some place where they go to hear somebody give a lecture on how to become a better person. Some people, when they think about church, they think of it as a place that they go to to sing songs, and it's really cool if there's a rockin' band on stage. For, for, for some people, their experience at church is this. It's something that they go to, and they don't really believe in it, but they go because they got kids, and they want the church to teach their kids morals. And so I, I go to church because I want my kids to grow up in the church so they can be taught the difference between right and wrong. For, for some people, when they think of church, they think of it as something that makes them a good person. Well, I mean, I, I go to church, so I must be a good person, Right? And because of my church attendance, it'll, it'll help stack up good against the bad, and then, and then I'll be able to go to heaven because I go to church. For some people, when they think of church, they see it as something that they'll, they'll serve at every once in a while. Well, I volunteer in the church. I mean, I'll help out. I mean, the church needs my help, and so it's a good cause, and so I'll give whatever time I can every once in a while. For some people, when they think of church, it's something that, that they say, you know, I, I'll give to the church every once in a while. I mean, you know, the, the church has bills, doesn't it? And so I'll, I'll help it out. I'll, I'll give the church a little bit of my charity. For a lot of people in our country, I think this is what they think of when they think of church. And hopefully as you hear all those examples, if you've been coming to this church any certain amount of time and you've been sitting under my preaching, you would respond by saying, no way. That is not what the church is about at all. The, the church is nothing like that. It's so much more. Hopefully, as you think about the church, you would see it as a movement. I mean, that was Jesus' idea of the church. 2,000 years ago, before he established the church, he was talking to one of his followers, Peter, and he said this about his church. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So Jesus' understanding of the church, his vision for the church, is that we would be a movement that forcefully advances against the gates of hell. Because gates are defensive. And in order for gates not to be able to withstand something, that means something has to advance against it. So when Jesus thought of the church, he thought of us, he thought of you and me as a movement advancing against the gates of hell, going in and taking territory for God. Jude 21 says that we would be the kind of people who snatch others from the fire. Jesus said in Luke 19 that I have come to seek and save that which was lost. And so this was Jesus' understanding of the church, that we would be a movement on a mission. It's too early for y'all, okay. I'll say it like this. Jesus' understanding of the church was that we would make a difference in the world. And so here's what the church isn't. The church is not a cruise ship for comfortable Christians to play croquet and sip cocktails while they wait for the port destination of heaven. But the church is a Coast Guard ship where everybody is assigned a position, everybody has a part to play, and everybody does their part to see people raise the true life. That's what the church is. There's my church. There you are. Welcome. Really, 
What you could say is that Jesus' vision for the church is that we would be this movement that makes a difference in the world, that we would be the kind of people uh, who, who, to, to be reckoned with, right? Uh, but in order for that to happen, in order for us to accomplish that, it takes great sacrifice. Napoleon Hill said that great achievement is often born of great sacrifice, and so uh, Jesus, as he was uh, talking about this, this movement he was going to start, the, the kingdom of heaven coming here to earth in the church, uh, he, here's what he said when he taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He said, and when you pray, say this, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. I want to give you some commentary on this. When Jesus teaches us to pray that, he's not saying, God, it's all on you to make this world look more like heaven. But what he's saying is that I want you to be the kind of people who live out your prayers, who are the answer to your prayers. And so when you pray, God, may this world look more like heaven, you live it out. You live the life of heaven here and now. That's what the church is. That's what this movement is that I've come to launch, a group of people who would live the life of heaven here and now. But in order to do that, it takes great sacrifice. Jesus knew that when he was calling his disciples. Uh, and he also told this story. Uh, it's a quick parable in Matthew 13, 44. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, it was a privilege for him. He was joyful about it. In his joy, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought that field. He found something great, and he sacrificed to get it, right? Great achievement is often born of great sacrifice. Jesus, when he called his disciples to follow him, he said, I want you to leave everything behind. Leave your career, leave your family, leave everything behind, and come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. We're going to go do something great, but in order to do that, it requires a sacrifice. Great achievement is often born of great sacrifice. We, we see the early church, how they operate. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, it's written about them that often uh, Christians sold property, uh, homes, and fields, and they brought the money to the, to the feet of the apostles, the leaders of the church, so that they could distribute it. And it said that because of their generosity, because of the sacrifice they made, there were no needy persons among them. See, great achievement is often born of great sacrifice. Like, it's one thing to have great potential in you. I don't know if you know that or not, but you have tremendous potential inside of you. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, so you have limitless potential in you. But, but it's one thing to have potential in you. It's another thing to do what it takes to pull that potential out. See, some people just sit on the potential inside of them. And often to pull the potential out, it takes great sacrifice. Great achievement is often born of great sacrifice. You see this in professional athletes. They often sacrifice greatly in order to achieve what they do. Without the sacrifice, the achievement doesn't come. And I've come this morning to let you know that God has called us as a church to live out the vision that he had 2,000 years ago. He's called us to achieve great things as a church. But if we're going to do that, <clears throat> if we're going to rise up as the church, if we're going to be the rising, then it's going to take great sacrifice from us to see that happen. As we uh, prepare in this series 
centering our thoughts around December 11th, the day that we're going to have an opportunity to bring God our, our end of year offering, the, the biggest offering we've ever brought him in our lives. Uh, I want to I help you think through uh, this title. Here's the title for my sermon, if you would take a moment to write it down. It says, The Sacrifice of Blessing. The Sacrifice of Blessing. <clears throat> Every blessing is preceded by a sacrifice. And as we get ready to bring a sacrifice to God on December 11th, a, a financial offering to him over and above our tithe, uh, I wanna help you think through what it means to sacrifice as you begin to say, God, what do you want me to bring on December 11th? By the way, <clears throat> uh, we introduced this series last week and we put an envelope of magnet and a prayer card on everyone's seat. Uh, if you weren't here last week, Shame on you, but, um, <laughs> but if you didn't get that envelope, magnet, or prayer card, as you exit today, people on our VIP team are gonna be handing those out, and so if you already have one, you don't need to take one, uh, but if you don't have one, we wanna make sure that you, that you get that. Uh, but as we, as we center our thoughts around December 11th, I wanna prepare us <clears throat> by pointing you to a place in the scriptures where we see a great sacrifice that's made. So if you have a Bible, uh, would you open up to 1 Kings chapter 17? 1 Kings chapter 17, we'll start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. We'll also have the words from the screen. But before we read that, I want to give you a little bit of context of what's taking place. Um, so at this time, the nation of Israel, which is made up of 12 tribes, has split. It's divided. And so there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is made up of 10 tribes. The southern kingdom is made up of two tribes. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom at this time is ruled by a wicked king named Ahab. Ahab has married a wicked woman named Jezebel. The reason why she's wicked is because uh, she's brought the worship of Baal and Asherah into Israel. God said about Israel, he said, you're my people called by my name and I want you to worship only me because if you worship anything else, you're wasting your time because they're false gods, they're not real. And so I just wanna save your time, I wanna save you the heartache and the heartbreak and just let you know you should worship only me because those other gods are false. Well, Jezebel brings the worship of Baal and Asherah into Israel. And what happens is the people of Israel forsake God and start to worship Baal and Asherah. And so God sees this and he says, I, I need to draw their hearts back to me so I'm gonna cause some trouble in their land. Uh, you know, this happens often uh, in people's lives. They experience some trouble and sometimes the trouble you experience is not caused by God. I just wanna let you know that. Sometimes we ask the question, well, how come God did this? Maybe God didn't do that, but he allowed it to happen. And maybe God is trying to teach you something. And sometimes bad things happen in our life and there is no explanation. And, and, and if you did, or, or there is an explanation, but if you had the explanation, it wouldn't help. But why did this person, die? do you really want me to tell you? Or do you want me to sit here and grieve with you? I think that helped help a lot more than an intellectual answer to the question you're asking. But sometimes God allows things to happen. Sometimes things just happen just because we live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. But often what happens in our lives is bad things take place and then we cry out to God. God, save me, help me. A lot of times when people come to the church, uh, it's because somebody brought them. 
And the reason somebody brought them is because they realized something was going bad in their life. And so they said, here, you should come to church. That's where I found hope. And so they bring that person and then they find God and then things go well. But here's what we find over and over in the scriptures. Here's what maybe you found in your own life and in the lives of your friends. When things start to go well, we say, okay, I'm good, I got this. And we go our own way again. And then something bad happens. And then we come back to God. God, help me. And he saves us. And then we go our own way. And we go through this cycle this up and down with God, I just wanna encourage you this morning, if that's you, to stop the cycle. You're where you need to be. You found what you need to find. You're here, and God is good. But this is what happens. God allows a drought to take place in the land to bring the people of Israel back to him. This is where we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse one. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And so God says through Elijah, it's not gonna rain here till I say so. Skip over to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse one. It says this, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. So it hasn't rained in the past three years. There's a drought going on. And then Elijah goes to present himself to King Ahab. Go ahead and skip over to verse 16 in 1 Kings chapter 18. It says this, Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, here's what's taking place. Um, Elijah has said to Ahab, uh, you've abandoned the way of God. And so we're about to do something. I want you to get all the prophets of Baal to come to Mount Carmel, all the prophets of Asherah to come to Mount Carmel, and, and, and we're about to have a showdown. Now, imagine that you're somebody living in Israel. I mean, you don't have TV, you can't watch SportsCenter or anything like that, and so you hear that this showdown is about to go down, so you show up. You're like, I wanna see what's happening. I, I wanna see what's gonna take place. And so not only do the prophets of Baal show up and the prophets of Asherah, but people from all over Israel show up. People from Judah come to see what's gonna take place and they all gather at Mount Carmel. Here's why Elijah said, I wanna meet at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was a place where they used to worship God. But now this is a place where they worship Baal and Asherah. And so Elijah says, we're gonna have a showdown on your home turf. You're gonna have home field advantage. And I want you to show up because something is about to go down. And so all the people from all over Israel have gathered at Mount Carmel and they wanna find out what's gonna take place. Um, and so Elijah stands in front of the people, verse 21. It says, he went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. So all the people have shown up. You're there. And Elijah turns to you. And he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? 
In this country, we've been following God, but then we started following Baal, and some of you have tried to follow both God and Baal. How long will you waver between two opinions? Which is it? If God's God, then follow him. You can't just believe in him and not live for him. So if you believe in him, live for him. But if Baal is God, we'll follow him. Sell out to one of them. Go all in with one of them. Don't waver on the fence. Which one is it going to be? And you know, 500 years before this instance, the same question was asked to the people of Israel. See, what happened 500 years prior is this. Moses had led the people of Israel out of Egyptian captivity. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then uh, Joshua takes over, and he leads them into the promised land God had for them. They go into Cana, that's the promised land, and they conquer it. And, and now they've, they've conquered the land of conquest, um, and they've settled into the promised land God has given them. But Joshua, at the end of his book, uh, stands in front of the people of Israel. And he said, when we left Egypt, you brought some of the gods with you from Egypt. You brought some of the trinkets with you, some of the idols, and you still got them. We've seen all that God has done in our lives. We've seen how he's delivered us from the hand of Egypt, how he parted the Red Sea, how he brought us through the land of Cana so that we can conquer it. We've seen how God has shown up in mighty, miraculous ways. But you still are holding on to some of these gods from Egypt. And here's what Joshua says to him. Choose ye this day. I just got King James right there. Choose ye this day whom you will serve, either the gods from across the river or the God of Israel. And Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he poses this question to him. Who's it going to be? Who are you going to serve? You can't have both and. It's all or, or none. It's one or the other. Who are you going to serve? And the people of Israel 500 years prior to what we just read said, far be it from us to forsake the Lord. We will serve him also. I want to take a moment real quick just to ask you, are you wavering between two opinions? Are you wavering between serving God and money, serving God and sex? Serving God and finding your identity in a relationship with someone. Uh, serving, serving God and success. Serving God in your career. Serving God in your family. Are you, are you wa what are you wavering between? And can I just ask you, wh whom will you choose today? Who will you make the priority in your life? Who will you allow to be front and center in your life? Because here's what happens. Elijah stands in front of the people. And he says, choose this day. How long will you waver between two opinions? And what's recorded for us is what I believe to be one of the saddest sentences in all of the Old Testament. It says this, but the people said nothing. But the people said nothing. Elijah stood in front of the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If God is God, follow God. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Which will you choose? And the people remained silent. They decided to not decide. I think one of the saddest things that could happen in your life today is if you came and you heard about a God who loves you, who's been pursuing you your whole life, 
who brought you here for a purpose and a reason. Newsflash, you're not here on accident. You're not here by mistake. You're not here by coincidence. But God, um, God had planned for you to be here. You have a divine appointment to be here, to, to understand that he loves you and he cares for you and he calls you to be in relationship with him. If The saddest thing that could happen is if you show up today and you refuse to make a decision about who you'll follow. Because a decision to not decide is a decision to walk away from God. I want to give you that moment to decide right now. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know what your past is. I don't know what you've experienced. I don't, I don't know all your thoughts on God. But I want to give you an opportunity today to say yes to him. If you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never said Jesus I don't know about the whole Jonah and the whale thing or what happened with the dinosaurs or I don't know about creation and evolution and I don't really know about some of these other Christians in the world and what they believe and I don't really know about, okay, 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 okay. If you believe that Jesus died for you on the cross, he took your sin on himself and when Jesus died, it died. He died so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be restored, so that you could have grace and mercy. If you believe that Jesus died for you, that he rose again from the dead, that he resurrected, that death couldn't hold on, that death couldn't hold him. If you believe Jesus died for you and he rose again from the dead, that's the starting point. And if you believe that today and you wanna accept that, all you have to do is say, God, I wanna accept you I want to give you my life. I want to live for you. All that other stuff I'll sort out and figure out, but I believe you died for me and rose again from the dead. And I want to give you my life. I want to make you the leader of my life. And just like we saw Eric get baptized, it's in that moment that he said yes to God and became a Christian. If you're ready to become a Christian, if you want to say yes to God, I want to give you an opportunity to do just that. When you came in, you received a program. At the bottom of that program is a Connect card. At the bottom of that connect card, there's a box that says, I want to accept Christ and be baptized. I got baptized when I was a baby, but you didn't decide it. Your parents decided it for you. Now it's your decision. If you've never made the decision to accept Christ, to say yes to him, to be baptized, now is your moment. The worst thing you could ever do is to not decide. The best decision you'll ever make in your life is to say yes to Jesus. If you fill that card out, you, I want you to take it to the black tables at the end of the worship experience. We got some people there who would love to talk with you and talk to you about getting you ready to be baptized, not today, but another day. And I don't have the band playing behind me. I'm not shouting. It's not some loud emotional thing. So this isn't about emotions, but it's about you deciding I want to follow Jesus and give him my life. Elijah looked to the people and they said, how long are you going to waver? If God's God, follow him. But if Baal is God, well, then follow him. But the people said nothing. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He's God. How's that as a deal? We're going to see whatever God answers by fire, we'll say, well, that's God. And then all the people said, well, what, what you say is good. We're down. We accept 
the challenge. Verse 26. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Said, then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Now, the English translation that, that we have of what Elijah says is actually quite tame. Uh, because when Elijah says, perhaps he's deep in thought, the Hebrew word that's used here means excrementing. So he says, perhaps he's excrementing. Perhaps he's on the toilet going number two. I mean, this is what Elijah says. This is insulting. He said, he's got to be a god, right? Perhaps he's in the bathroom. Or maybe he's busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awake and shout louder. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom. See, they were doing whatever they could to get the attention of God. I wonder if for some of you, you've been doing whatever you can to get the attention of God, but you've missed it because God has already said, you have my attention. It's not about what you do. It's not about how good you are. I already love you. I already gave you my son. I already came to redeem you. You have my attention, but do I have yours? So they slashed themselves until their blood flowed. Verse 29, midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. If I was a preacher who got off track on my sermons, I'd take a moment to let you know that maybe the reason uh, the thing that you're calling out to isn't answering you is because it doesn't have the power to answer you. I know you've been putting your hope in politics. I know you've been putting your hope in money. I know you've been putting your hope in a relationship. I know you've been putting your hope in, in, in all sorts of things. But the reason why they can't help you, the reason why they're not answering is because they have no power to. See, they called out to something that couldn't help them. They, they placed their hope in something they thought would save them, but had no voice. But I'm not a preacher who gets off topic. So verse 40, it said, then Elijah came to all the people Come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. If, if, if I was preaching on a different subject, I'd say uh, that, that maybe that there was a time in your life where you had a relationship with God because it said that he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. So there was an altar there to God. It had been torn down. Maybe you had a relationship with God when you were in high school, but then you went to college and you went your own way. But God can repair that relationship. Maybe you believed in God when you were a child, but now you're an adult. God can restore that childlike faith. See, if I had the time, I'd, I'd preach on that, but I don't have time to talk about that. Verse 31, it said, Elijah took 12 stones, one from each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord uh, had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. If I had time to talk about something else, then I'd tell you this, that Elijah took the 12 stones each representing the tribes of Israel where there was a division in Israel. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, 10 tribes and two tribes, but Elijah took 12 stones and said, I'm gonna put them together to make one altar. 
See, if I wanted to make an application and help you out in your life, then what I would say is this, that even though your marriage seems to be divided and broken, God can restore it and make it whole and one again. Even though, even though uh, your, your relationship with your parents has been severed, God can rebuild it and make what was one, one again. Even though it's all broken up, God can take all the broken pieces and put them back together to make them one. God is in the resurrection business. God is in the restoration business. But that's not my sermon this morning. It said that he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. If I had time, I'd say that in order to get ready for the miracle that God's about to do in their midst, Elijah had to do some work. Sometimes we want God to just show up and do something miraculous, but we aren't willing to do the work. See, you need to pray like it depends on God, but you need to work like it depends on you. God, give me a job. It's not going to fall from heaven. You need to go fill out some applications, get a haircut, shave your face, put some nice clothes on, and meet the person you're trying to work for. Don't just sit behind your computer tapping out an application talking about nobody calls me back. Do some work. That's what Elijah does. He cut the bull up. He cut the wood. He made the altar. Because the altar couldn't be engulfed with flames if there was no altar in the first place. You got to set it up. You got to set the stage. You got to tee it up for God so he can just hit a hole in one for you. I'm not preaching about that. He says, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. The, the, the point of this standoff is that whatever sacrifice catches fire uh, shows that that's the real God. So if the sacrifice for Baal catches fire, well, then he's God. But if the sacrifice for, to the Lord catches fire, well, then he's God. But Elijah has them pour water on it. Like, if you want to get fire from, you, you don't pour gasoline, yeah, but, but water, you don't, it doesn't make sense. God has them pour out water. And if I was preaching this sermon in the past, I would have told you the reason why he has them pour out water is because he wants to make it impossible. He, he wants to make it so people would see and say, oh man, because it was drenched, it was soaked, but it caught fire. That's, the, I mean, that was God. If I was preaching this in the past, that's what I would have said. Like, like fire coming from the sky and engulfing the sacrifice wasn't enough because, well, that could have been anything, but because it was wet, that was God. But he has them pour water on the sacrifice. What he's doing is he's getting ready for a miracle. It says, at the time of the sacrifice, verse 36, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I'm your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. 
Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it also licked up the water in the trench. Then all the people, when they saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You see what I mean here? Like having the wood be wet and the bull be wet and the stones be wet and all that, that's not gonna stop a fireball from heaven engulfing it. It doesn't matter that it's wet, but this happens and fire comes down and the people see this and, and as a result of that, they turn to God, they make their answer because they've seen a miracle take place in their midst. I wanna remind you that earlier before the sermon, you saw a miracle take place in your midst as somebody was raised to true life, as somebody came from death to life. There was a miracle that took place and you just saw it. You're sitting around miracles right now. But they saw it, and they said, the Lord, he is God. Here's what they're saying. Elijah, Elijah. Because the name Elijah, here's what it means, the Lord, he is my God. So the people are saying, Elijah, Elijah, the Lord, he is God. They've made their decision. But the question still remains, why does he have the people pour the water on the altar. I mean, Elijah does all the work. He cuts the bull up, he cuts the wood up, he puts the stones where they are, he digs a trench around the whole thing, but then he gets the people involved on this one. He says, I want you to fill these four jars with water. Now these jars most likely held 20 to 30 gallons. These orange trash cans here are 20 gallon trash cans. So there were jars about this size right here down front. It says, I want you to fill them with water. The numbers in the Bible are significant. Um, how many jars are there? Four. How many times does he have them pour it out? Three. Four times three is 12. There are 12 tribes of Israel. What he's saying is everybody's gonna be all in on this. I'm gonna get everybody involved. There was a drought in the land. How many years was the drought? Three. How many times did they pour out the water? Three. Three times for the drought. But where does Elijah get the water? From the people. When you came in and you sat down in your seat, hopefully you saw that there's a water bottle or several water bottles there. Hopefully you didn't sit on it. We gave you those water bottles because I wanna give you an opportunity now. We'll have everybody do this. Go ahead and grab the water bottles there. We have four trash cans here. I want you to come pour the water out into the trash cans. This is an all skate. He said, I want you to fill these four jars with water. The water we gave you isn't gonna fill it up. He said, I want you to fill it up four times, or all four jars. I want you to fill it up, pour it out. Don't pour these out. <laughs> 
fill it up, pour it out. He has the people bring the water needed for the sacrifice. Because where else is he going to get the water from? Well, it's got to be from the people. But when does he have the people pour the water out? During a drought. What's scarce? Can y'all follow me as you do this? You still listening? Don't get ADD on me. What's scarce during a drought? Water. Elijah, why are you having us pour this water out? Water is a scarce commodity. Don't you understand that we need water? Elijah's like, yeah, I know. Come on, pour it out. And apparently there wasn't enough water. So he said, okay, we filled the four jars, but there's still some more water left. Come on, let's fill it again and pour it out. And there wasn't enough water that was poured out. So he said, okay, some of y'all still got some water. Come on, let's pour it out. And then they fill it again, and they pour it out a third time. Elijah gets the water from the people, but water is a scarce commodity because there's a drought. Here's the thing. Elijah calls the people to do the impractical so that God can do the impossible. It doesn't make sense to pour our water out during a drought, Elijah. We need water. I know you need water. But what little bit of water you got, watch this. God's about to make it multiply. So I want you to do the impractical. Pour out the water you have so that God can fill your life with even more water. So the people pour out the water. Now they've made a sacrifice. Because a sacrifice is what hurts. A sacrifice is something you feel. So they pour it out, and now they have no more water. And then fire comes down, the people turn to God. But that's not the miracle the people needed. The people needed another miracle. Now that they've poured out the water, well, they need more water. And I'm going to show you in a minute the water that they get, but I want to point this out to you. With great achievement, uh, great achievement is often born of great sacrifice. Every blessing is preceded by a sacrifice. He had the people make a sacrifice to pour the water out so they could receive more water. And here's what I want you to notice. When you came in, you had some water bottles in your possession. You didn't bring them in. They weren't your water bottles, but they were provided for you. And I've asked you to pour out what was provided for you in the same way as we get ready for December 11th, as you start to take a look at your finances and your income, I don't want you to get um, a misunderstanding thinking that what you have is yours, but it was provided for you by God. And we're going to pour it out. Because before every blessing takes place, there's always, always, always a sacrifice. Good God, I don't have enough time to give you more examples. Um... I, I, I want to show you this in other places in the scriptures, but we might go over. Um, Rocky, we got time to go just, just a few minutes over. Is that all right, Rocky? I'll say amen. Okay, he's waving me. He said, yeah, all right. Can, can I give you these examples? If you don't want them, I won't give them to you. But here, I want you to go back. 
I want you to go back to the beginning of the drought. It's in 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to have to talk fast about this. See, what happened was Elijah uh, was brought to a, a, a brook where, where he was being, uh, where there was water and he was being fed by ravens. See, God brought him to the brook, but then the brook dried up. If I had time, I'd let you know that sometimes God brings us to a place and things don't always go the way we thought they would. And it's because God wanted to supply for us in one season, but he wants us to move to the next season. Sometimes God doesn't, I don't have time for that. So, so the brook dries up. Verse seven, verse seven, first Kings 17, seven. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Why? Because there's a drought. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? Water's scarce. It's a drought. As she was going to get it, he called Oh, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Hey, can I get a, a glass of water, please? Hey, and while you're up, can I get some, some bread, too? Right? This is what Elijah says to her. And, and, and while you're at it, can I get some bread, too? As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. This is her situation. Look at here, Mr. Prophet Man. I was gonna get you some water, but now you're asking too much. Now listen, God said to Elijah, go there where I've directed a widow to feed you. So God said, I've told her to feed you, but she acts like she didn't get the memo. Or she did get the memo, and she doesn't want to do what God told her to do. She said, listen, I don't have anything to feed you, sir. All I have is a little bit of flour and some olive oil, and my son and I are going to eat that, and then we're going to die. That's my plan. There. And Elijah told her, verse 13, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Okay, well, go ahead and do your plan. Eat your bread and die. But first, before you do that, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. So before you go through with your plan, eat all that you have and die. Make me some bread and then eat for yourself. What he's saying is I want you to make a sacrifice. I want you to make a sacrifice. Verse 14 for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. If, if you want to do your plan, you can. You can go and consume all that you have, and you'll eat it, and you'll die. That's fine. But if you make a sacrifice, if you bring me some bread first, and here's what's going to happen. The jar of oil will not run dry. The flour will not run out. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. And so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. Isn't that something that when you do what God told you to do, seems to work out? The jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. And keeping with the word, the Lord was, uh, had spoken by Elijah. See, before every blessing comes, there's always a sacrifice. When the nation of Israel comes into the promised land, God says that first city you're about to conquer is Jericho. That's my city. I don't want you to take anything from that city. Instead, sacrifice it to me. When you do that, the rest will be blessed. And that's what happens. 
well, first some guy takes some of the stuff and then they're cursed and then they kill the guy and his family. It's, I don't have time to get into it. But they say, here, God, here's, here's yours. And God said, okay, because you sacrificed the first, I'll bless the rest. Um, this happens in Malachi. God said, don't rob me. Instead, return the tithe back to me. Bring the first 10% back to me. When you do that, when you make that sacrifice, see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you won't know what to do with it. But the blessing comes after the sacrifice. The sacrifice always happens first. I mean, I could just cut to the chase and talk about salvation. In order for us to be redeemed and restored and forgiven, it took a sacrifice for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus was a sacrifice for our sins. In order for us to be blessed by God, there had to be a sacrifice. Sacrifice always comes before blessing. Let me go back to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. Actually, before I go back to Elijah, I want to talk to you about the sacrifice we're making on December 11th. Um, so uh, a way that I prepare for Sundays is um, I'll write out my sermon and then I'll preach it to myself uh, in our dining room and I'll record it and I'll listen to it throughout the week. Um, so I'm listening to myself, preaching to myself, and as I listen to it, I'm like, oh, I gotta change that. Maybe I'll say it this way. I'll, I'll omit this, and you know. So as I was preparing for this, and I was listening to this weeks ago, I was cutting the grass, listening to myself preach this sermon. And I was talking about making a sacrifice, a sacrifice, sacrifice. Pour it out. These people poured out all the water that they had. And my wife and I had already talked about what we're gonna bring on December 11th. We already talked about the sum. And we said, yeah, that's, you know, that's a lot of money for us. That's a sacrifice. But as I was listening to myself preach this, cutting the grass, I felt like God said to me, and it, this in the conversation that happened word to word, and it wasn't audible. So, But I felt like God laid this impression on me where he said, hey, James, because God doesn't call me pastor, but he said, James, um, you know what you're planning on bringing on December 11th? I said, uh-huh, I know what it is. He said, that's not a sacrifice. You can do that. How are you gonna stand in front of the people in your church and say, bring the biggest offering you've ever brought to God and you're gonna settle for something that's not a sacrifice? I said, well, well God, what, what would be a sacrifice then? And I felt like God was saying to me, you know what you have in your savings account? What you've been saving up for a down payment for a house because you want to move next year so your daughter can go to a better school? What you've been saving for a down payment for a house, all that that you have in your savings account? I want you to sacrifice that to me. I want you to bring me everything you got in your savings account. I said, God, had you seen how much money we got in a savings account? He said, I want you to sacrifice it. I said, okay, well, that's hard, but we'll do it. But I gotta keep $1,000 in the account to keep it open, so I'll just hold on to that. I felt like God said, no, I want you to sacrifice all of it. I want you to bring me the down payment to your house. And so Irene came home later that day. <laughs> and I said, hey, you know, on December 11th, how we had talked about giving this amount of money? She said, yeah. I said, well, how much do you think we should give? Because I want to see if God was talking to her. 
like he was talking to me, and she said, we should give that. And I said, okay, well, good. I said, but here's, here's what I felt like God was saying to me. See, I was cutting the grass, and I felt like God said, I want you to give this amount. And I gave her a number, because I left the $1,000 out that keeps the account open. I said, I think we should give this amount. And she was like, oh, okay, it's a lot. I said, I know. She said, but if that's what you think we should do, let's do it. I was like, really? She said, yeah. I said, okay. Okay, well, I didn't tell you the whole thing. Here's, here's the whole thing. <laughs> I felt like what God was saying to me is, I want you to give the entire savings account. She said, oh, really? I said, yeah, really. She said, okay. If that's what we need to do, let's do it. And so on December 11th, that's what we're giving. I'm not gonna tell you how much it is, but that's what we're giving. Because I felt like God was saying to me, and this is what God was saying to me. I don't know what he's saying to you, but I want you to bring a sacrifice. I want you to pour out all the water that you have. Because if you'll do that, I'll make it rain in your life that you can't even imagine. I wanna invite you over the next couple weeks as we get ready for December 11th to go to God in prayer and say, God, what would you have me bring? What's a sacrifice? Maybe you've been thinking about a number and you say, that's too little. And it's not about how much you bring, it's about the sacrifice. We did this intentionally. Some of you had one bottle of water to bring, some of you had two, some of you had three. Some of you have more that you can bring, but we wanted you to make the sacrifice. And so everybody has different amounts of water that they have. But what is a sacrifice for you? On December 11th, we're gonna bring a sacrifice to God. And so the people bring this, and then here's the miracle that takes place. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. There's the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Okay. Seven times Elijah said, well, go back. <laughs> go back and look. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariots and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling. Elijah said, I heard, I hear the sound of a heavy rain. But there's no clouds in the sky. How'd you hear it? It's not thunder. Where'd it come from? Elijah said, I heard, I hear the sound of a heavy rain. A heavy rain is gonna, is gonna come. It's gonna fall in this place. And rain is a good thing at the end of a three-year drought. I hear a heavy rain coming. We don't see any clouds. We don't hear any thunder. How do you hear it? You know how Elijah heard it? Because God told him it would happen. Because God told him it would happen. When we bring a sacrifice on December 11th, I want to let you know because God said it would happen, he's going to make it rain in your life. 
God said, it's in his word. It's in his word. Return the tithe to me. This is over and above the tithe. Return the tithe to me and see if I don't open the what? The floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you won't know what to do with it. On December 11th, it's our time to rise up and bring a sacrifice to God. Because when we bring that sacrifice, when we pour out the water that's been given to us, I've just come to let you know this morning, there's gonna be a heavy rain that takes place in your life. God's gonna make it rain like you've never seen before. And I don't know that it's a financial blessing, it might be peace, it might be joy, it might be knowing that you're giving towards something bigger than yourself, but it's gonna rain in your life. Not only is it gonna rain in your life, it's gonna rain in this church as we stir up a spirit of generosity like we never have before. but it starts with a sacrifice. You can have your seat. It starts with a sacrifice, a sacrifice, a sacrifice, a sacrifice. On December 11th, I want to invite you to bring a sacrifice, the biggest offering you've ever brought to God in reflection of your love and gratitude toward Him. It's a sacrifice, but I don't want you to see it as a sacrifice. Here's how I want you to see it. Professional athletes, in order for them to get where they go, they gotta sacrifice a lot. Sacrifice their diet plan, their time, hanging out with friends, educational opportunities. They sacrifice a lot. But when professional athletes are asked, when most of them are asked about the biggest sacrifice they ever made, here's what they say. Gene LaBelle, the man whom Chuck Norris said was the most dangerous man on earth, said this, I didn't have to sacrifice a thing. You know he did. But he said, I didn't have to sacrifice a thing. Working out every day gained me a lot of things, more energy and a winning attitude. Other top athletes said this over and over about the sacrifices they made. They said, I never saw any of it as a sacrifice. When you love something, you don't consider many things sacrifices other people would. I've been asked this question many times and I honestly and humbly answer that I don't feel I've sacrificed anything. I really don't believe I've had to make any sacrifices to get to the top, or at least I don't view it as a sacrifice. On December 11th, we're gonna bring the biggest sacrifice we've ever brought to God. We're gonna pour out the water that he's given to us so that he can make it rain in our lives and in our church, so he can increase generosity in our heart, so that he can do even greater things in our church because before every blessing comes a sacrifice. But I don't want you to see it as a sacrifice. I want you to see it as a privilege, as an opportunity, as a I get to bring this to you. God, thank you for all that you've done in my life. Thank you for how you've redeemed me, how you've restored me, how you've taken my sins away. And as a result of that, just out of a reflection, there's no way I could put a price tag on it. But on December 11th, I wanna bring the biggest gift just to say thank you so much for what you've done. I know you don't need it, God, but I want you to do something in my life because of it. I want you to stir up generosity. I want you to open doors of blessing. I want you to help me see things differently. God, I'm bringing a sacrifice, not for you, 
not because you need it, but because I need it. I need to do this for me. God, I pray that December 11th, we would just be overwhelmed by the generosity that flows from this house. And as we pour out what you've given to us, God, I pray that you would make it rain. Give us peace, God. Give us hope. Give us joy. And God, we pray for a return as well. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We pray you were inspired and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, sign up to serve on a team, join a group, or just find out more information on The Rising, visit us at wearetherising.com.